We're going to be over in the book of First Samuel. We won't be bouncing around too much, so we won't have a whole lot of turning that you'd have to do. First Samuel, chapter 13 to begin with. There's a person who put out a definition of marriage. Marriage is when you agree to spend the rest of your life sleeping in a room that's too warm beside someone who's sleeping in a room that's too cold. Yeah, that's sometimes how it is, isn't it? Sometimes life is filled with some compromises and some things that we do to get along and some things are okay to compromise on and some things are okay to do that. But you know what? The Word of God is not one of them. There's the will of God and we must be faithful to His will. We must be faithful to the things that He has done. And today we entitle this one, Faithful Enough. Am I faithful enough? We're going to look at Saul today. Was he faithful enough? What is faithful enough? We looked at the Scripture before in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 6. I like the reading from the message translation. Lots of people claim to be loyal and loving, but where on earth can you find one? Where on earth can you find one? CEV says, there are many who say you can trust me, but can they be trusted? Youngs, a multitude of men proclaim each his kindness and a man's man of steadfastness who doth find. Everyone seems to view themselves, and I'm sure that we do too. How many of you view yourself as faithful? We've talked about this in the past. But yet God says faithful people are rare. They are few. We need to find out the principles that God looks at make us faithful. Today we're going to look at an example. We've looked at some of the doctrine involved with this in the three weeks before. We're going to look at, at uh, Saul and some of the things that he did or did not do. In chapter 13 and verse 1, Saul reigned one year, and when he reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and in the mountains of Bethel, and a thousand were with Jonathan in Gabeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent away, every man to his tent. And Jonathan attacked the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. Now all Israel heard it, and that Saul had attacked the garrison of the Philistines, and that Israel had also become an abomination to the Philistines, and the people were called together to Saul at Gilgal. Then the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, and the people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. Now when the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed, then the people hid in caves, in thickets, in rocks, in holes, and in pits. And some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. As for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. So those who stayed were so fearful they trembled as they followed Saul. But they were outnumbered. They didn't normally hear about too many chariots that they had, but the enemy had a lot. And they were quite frightened at all this. And so we see the fear of the people. And this is the setting for which Saul goes into the next part. He's got a group of people with him and they're fearful. They are afraid. Then he waited seven days according to the time set 
by Samuel. So we're not told about this, but somewhere Samuel said, you gather the people up and in seven days I will be up there with you. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal and the people were scattered from him. So Saul said, bring a burnt offering and peace offering here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. Now what is significant about this is that Saul moves from the place of being king to the place of being priest and king. He's taking on a new role. And he's taking it on because of what he sees. The first off, the people are scattering. The people are fearful. The enemy is gathering. And he's afraid of losing this battle. And he talks about all the things he is afraid of as the story goes on. Now it happened as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering that Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him that he might greet him. And Samuel said, What have you done? Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattered from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash, then I said, The Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal and I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. Now he probably means this. I don't think this is some fabricated thing. I think this is actually what was going on with Saul. But if you think about it, how much sense does it make that in order to go into battle, we have to make peace with God, but we can't do it because the the priest isn't here. So what I'll do is I'll step into a role that God doesn't want me to so that I make peace with God. That makes a whole lot of sense, doesn't it? But it did at the time. At least it looked better than the other, other things that were out there. Saul didn't see a whole lot of choice in this, and so he felt compelled, as he says, and he, he went on and he did that. But let's take a look at this. Put some things in your outline for this. First off, Samuel comes in and says, What have you done? What have you done? You ever did that with your kids? What have you done? What have you done? When that family show that was out there, that Steve Urkel character, did I do that? (laughs) What have you done? When I saw that the people... That's the first thing. So the first thing he looked at was, when I saw that the people... All those around me. All those I'm supposed to depend on. And that you did not. So the people were doing something and Samuel did not do something he was supposed to do. So he's not starting with him. First, Samuel said first off, what did you do? And he starts off by telling what the people did. What Samuel didn't do. And what the Philistines were doing. And the Philistines gathered. So I've got the people that are supposed to be with me doing one thing. You who are supposed to be our leader and our helper in this, you're not here, you're doing another thing. And then the enemy who's gathered against me, they're doing something. So somebody had to step up and do something. Somebody had to step up and get in there. So I felt compelled. Therefore, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. I wanted to make sure that God was on our side. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. Now, have we heard anything about the sun setting? Do we read anything about the sun setting? Do we read anything about the sun rising? Do we read anything about the next day? So what day is this? The same day, which would be the seventh day. Did did Samuel arrive when he said? He sure did. Because as soon as he gets done, the offering, offering the sacrifice, as soon as he gets done, here's Samuel. 
And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which He commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for Himself a man after His own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be commander over His people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel rose and went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people present with him about 600 men. Now they went on and they got a victory out of this. And you might think they got the victory because I'm sure a lot of the people thought, well, everything was fine. But Samuel and Saul knew that things were not fine. And Saul knew that he had messed up something on this, but God still brought about a victory on it. Didn't uh, hold the whole nation accountable because this guy stepped out of the the realm that he should have been in. But look at verse 13. Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord. Now, we don't know this for certain, but since Samuel was to meet him in seven days, that Samuel and him had talked about that, it would seem that this battle was either okayed by God or commissioned by God. I can't tell you which one, but I'm assuming that one of those things is true, that either God told them through Samuel to go into battle or something. And that may be why Jonathan attacked the garrison of the Philistines in the first place. We're not really given a whole lot of background on that. So we're left to assume some things. But he says, you have not kept the commandment of the Lord. So somewhere, this was not just an appointment that Samuel made, but this was a commandment of God that God said, I will be there. And Samuel will be there. And Saul will be there. And the people will be there. And you will go out and you will do this. And so Saul felt that he had to get this done, but saw the people scattering and saw Samuel not being there. And so he felt compelled and he stepped out. Was Saul faithful? No. Wasn't faithful at all. Now, you may look at this, and how many of you want to feel sorry for Saul? Be honest. I mean, if you didn't read the rest of the story, how many of you at this point want to feel sorry for Saul? Oh man, the poor guy. I mean, everything's coming down on him. He's a new leader. He's just in his second year. He's taking on this big task, knocking out the Philistines. And the people aren't behind them and they're not in faith. And Samuel, he didn't show up when he probably should have. Could have been there a little bit earlier, but he wasn't. And here he's all by himself. And he's got to figure out something to do. And he did the best thing he saw that he could do. I mean, come on, that's not so bad. Isn't that right? Isn't that what you're thinking? Yeah, because our view of faithfulness is different from God's. That's where we have to get out of that mentality. We can't, we can't walk around. How many of you felt bad for Moses? Moses was good, good leader all those years and it messes up one time and God says, that's it, you're not going in. Yeah, we feel bad for Moses, don't we? Why? Because we have a different standard of faithfulness. We look at it, well, he's been faithful for almost 40 years. He makes one mistake and these people made all these other mistakes and you want to take it out on him? We almost want to get mad at God for that. My pastor, share with us, I think I've shared with you a few times, but I'll tell it to you again. For all you folks who feel bad that Moses didn't get to go into the promised land, if you turn over into the New Testament, you will find out that Jesus, on the Mount of Transfiguration, appears on the mountain with Peter, James, and John. But appearing on the mountain with him is... And 
Elijah, if you have your choice of going into the promised land with four million grumbling, complaining Jews or Jesus and Elijah, who would you like to go in with? <laughs> well, that just was a different way of looking at it. I thought that was, <laughs> that was kind of fun. He sure murmured, grumbled, and complained, and they just were quite a group to, for him to be taken in. He may have been thinking, thank God. Oh, you mean I don't have to do it? <laughs> you mean someone else is going to have to do this? Thank you, Jesus. If I knew it was this easy, I would have hit that rock sooner. <laughs> I don't, we get up there, maybe we ask him about it, we'll find out. I don't know. But I, I almost would think that if I was Moses, I might have been a little bit relieved. So don't, don't feel bad. God has a standard of faithfulness. Now you say, well, God doesn't hold me to that standard of faithfulness. Not yet. But He'd like to. You've got to give Him the opportunity. Because you, He who is faithful in is faithful also in... Moses was faithful in little and God continued to give him more and more so that he became faithful with much. But to whom much is given, much is required. Yeah. So much was required of Moses. Much was required of Elijah. Much was required of Samuel. Much was required of Saul. Then he stopped. He stopped delivering. We have to adapt God's view of faithfulness, folks, and not our own. If we want to be counted as those that are faithful. God said, many people think they are faithful, but only a few really are. Another paraphrase of Proverbs 20 and verse 6. So what is unfaithful in God's eyes can usually be viewed as faithful in man's. What is unfaithful in God's eyes can usually be viewed as faithful in man's. Our reasons for unfaithfulness sometimes are very much like Saul's. What team members are or have not done. Don't you have some team members? Bodies in, body in the Christ? The body of Christ, isn't that part of your team? People in the church that you count on, aren't they part of your team? Friends, aren't they part of your team? And then when they let you down, well, my team members. I see what the people have done. The people are scattering. Then there's leadership failures. There's people you counted on in the leadership realm. And they let you down. What did Saul have for that? Well, Samuel, you didn't get here. You weren't here. People were scattering. Something had to be done. You weren't here. Someone had to step up. You let me down. So what leadership failures have occurred and what the enemy is, has, or promises to do. And that was his third reason as well. The Philistines, they were gathering. They had all the chariots, all the men. They were coming after us. And I thought we were going to go into battle without having entreated the favor of the Lord. And he didn't want to do that. Well, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, you can just uh, write this. It's already in your outline. Just listen to this. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 through 13. This is a faithful saying. If we died with Him, we shall also live with Him. If we endure, we shall also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will also deny us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful. I just think that's something else. Look at the progress in this, in this verse. This is a faithful saying. If we died with Him, we shall also live with Him. If we endure, we shall also reign with Him. So there's a 
corresponding action. If I do this, then it will have a logical and progressive corresponding action on the other side. Isn't that right? The logical thing is if I died with Him, that I will live with Him. If I endure, I will reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will also deny us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful. Now, is the opposite true here? If we are faithful, does He remain faithless? No. So now look at this verse again. If we died with Him, we shall also live with Him. Action in this life, corresponding action on the other side. If we endure in this life, corresponding action on the other side, we shall reign with Him. If we deny Him, action on this side, corresponding action on the other side, He will also deny us. Which means if I don't deny Him, He won't deny me. Right? If we are faithless, He remains faithful. So we always are looking at things having a corresponding reaction. And many things do. And He lists a number of things it does. But as to the faithfulness of God, there is no corresponding action that changes it. There is no action on our part that causes God to be more faithful or less faithful. Whose example are we to follow? We're supposed to follow His example, aren't we? His example is, if we are faithless, He remains faithful. He cannot deny Himself. No matter what, He remains faithful. We look at reasons for unfaithfulness or not living up to the faithfulness we think or know that we should because of what people have done, leaders have done, or what the enemy has done. But despite what those that God depends on, those in His family, those that are working for Him out here on the earth, despite what the enemy does, God remains faithful no matter what. So that's the example we have. So if you want to get to understand how God views faithfulness, you have to understand how God is faithful. See, the actions of the people, the actions of Samuel, and the actions of the enemy should never have had an effect upon Saul. Never should have had an effect on him. He should have remained faithful to what was commanded. Because this is what Samuel brings up. In fact, in those verses, he brought it up two times. You did not do what was commanded. You were not faithful to what was commanded. You walked away from it. But, but, but these people, it don't matter. But the enemy, it doesn't matter. But you didn't, it doesn't matter. How many of you ever tried to blame God for your unfaithfulness? Well, God, if you just would have come through for me on this, I could have. If you would have done here, if you would have brought this about, taken care of this, if you would have done this, I wouldn't have felt this way and that wouldn't have happened. It's your fault. No. It doesn't matter if your situation, if, your, if the things that are going on around you seem to indicate that God is faithless. doesn't matter if anything around indicates that. What you are responsible to do is to be faithful. That's how God looks at it. Samuel came up to Saul and said, What 
did you do? He didn't ask what the people did. He didn't ask what the Philistines did. He asked, what did you do? Well, we can see this in our kids too. Or even kids that you're in every once in a while. You get a hold of them and said, what did you do? If you're looking at something busted or something messed up or something ruined in some way. And what comes out of their mouth? So-and-so did this. But Johnny was. But Susan was. But the neighbor. But the bird came down. But the dog. We had all the butts, don't we? We bring them all out. Because <laughs> first off, we got to set the stage. This is why I was unfaithful. These are, my, these are my reasons. These are the things that I was up against. If you want to be found faithful with God, stop hiding behind excuses. God could care less what your excuse is. God wants to say, did you remain faithful? Did you do what I commanded you to do despite whatever came against you? That's what He wants to know. Did you do it? That's all He cares about hearing. Did you do it? Now Moses, when he was up there and in the, in the, getting the water for the people, and he struck the rock, and God rebuked him afterwards and said, you struck the rock. You didn't speak to it like I told you to. And for those who don't haven't been around for a while, there was an object lesson there. The first time Moses came to the rock, he struck the rock. The second time he came to the rock, he spoke to the rock. The first time that Jesus Christ came and ministered, he was struck. From that point on, he is spoken to. We use the name of Jesus. That's the object lesson that was supposed to be demonstrated. It was not. I don't know that the Israelites would have caught on to it. But anyway, that's what God wanted to go on. And Moses messed that up. What excuses did Moses offer? None at all. He stood there and took his medicine. He didn't blame anyone. He didn't point the finger. He just said, okay. Get to that level, huh? <laughs> Not there trying to blame anybody. And I'm, I'll tell you what, if anybody had somebody to blame, surely he did, didn't he? He didn't blame him. Joshua, when he signed the covenant with the people inside the land, who do you blame? Nobody. And he could have. They deceived me. But God, look at this. I don't have to. They, they just, he didn't do it. He said, all right. They got me. We're going to honor it. Because they understood what faithfulness was, what was required. There's too many times, folks, we look at people around us and use them as an excuse to be unfaithful. Well, why should I show up and pray every morning? So-and-so doesn't. Sometimes we get before God and says, God, I'll bet you I'm the only one who shows up every morning to pray. You're not. But, you know, you can sometimes think that way. <laughs> I'll bet I'm the only one. And God says, so? Remember, there was a guy in the Old Testament who thought he was the only one. Remember him? Elijah, I'm the only one. And God says, no, you're not. I got 7,000 others just like you. And if you want to step aside, I'll raise up one of them. They'll take your spot. You are replaceable. But be faithful. Don't be faithful or unfaithful because of what other people are doing or haven't done. You've got to get to that spot where you are faithful because your God commanded you. In every situation, you are faithful on the job. How many of you know of situations on your job where people rip off the employer? Take money, fudge hours, take stuff, whatever it is. You know that that's going on. And how many of you have thought, well, I won't do it as much as they do. 
but I ought to get a little bit. They probably expect it. They probably actually pay me based on the fact that they think I'm going to steal so much. So I should just take it because it's due me anyway. <laughs> no. You'd be faithful. You'd be faithful to what it is that they say to do. Be faithful to it. Know what God commanded you. God commanded you on your job. Be faithful in your job. He says, do your work as unto God, not unto them. You do it as unto God. Yes, sir. Don't go to God and say, but they, but the boss, but the competition. God doesn't care about any of that. What He cares about is, what are you faithful to? What are you faithful to? Stay faithful to it. Stay there with it. This is our example. If we are faithless, He remains faithful. I love that word remains in there. He doesn't change. He was faithful before. He'll be faithful after. And nothing you can do can change the faithfulness of God. Nothing you can do will change the faithfulness of God. I mean, have you ever thought of calling people in the body of Christ just to see how they're doing? Then you think, well, they haven't called me. <laughs> Forget it then. Who are you faithful to? God comes up in your spirit, give so-and-so a call. Encourage so-and-so. Help them out. What do you do? Well, they never encourage me. Who are you faithful to? Well, he didn't stop here. He went on in chapter 15. Samuel also said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people of Israel. Now therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Now, we didn't have all that stuff that came before in the previous story. We have it now. I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel. How he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them. Now this will be a little tough for some of you folks to read. But kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. How many of you want to execute this? Can you imagine going up and killing? I mean, the men of war, all right, that's fine. They got stuff, you know, shields and swords and it's one thing to kill somebody who's doing that, but then a woman who's not having a shield or a sword? A little child who's running around scared? Got to kill them too? Even little babies that are nursing? You got to kill them too? God executed judgment on these people. Now you might say, well, man, God is really holding the grudge here. Because this was a long time ago. That this happened. And it was a long time ago. You had Israel wandering around the wilderness and this, when this was going on. And then they went in and they took the promised land under Joshua. They had a number of other judges that had shown up before. And then Samuel ruled the people for a while. And then Saul came on the scene. So all that stuff happened before. And God says, let's go get them now. What did God, what was God waiting for? Well, we find out from the Word of God that God holds back judgment up to the third and fourth generation. That's mercy. Some people look at that verse as a judgment verse. It's not. It's a mercy verse. God holds back. He doesn't continue it until the third or fourth generation. He will sometimes hold it back until the third or fourth generation to give people a chance to repent. And apparently Amalek did not repent. They didn't repent. So, 
God sent judgment. Go in there and get them. They didn't repent of doing that. So now it's time for judgment. Go in there and, and judge them. And so they did. So Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Telam, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to a city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go depart, get down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. Now that was a good idea because he was only told to destroy the Amalekites. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. Well, they had to believe that the Israelites were going to come in and actually wipe them all out. If they left and the Amalekites won the battle, guess what the Amalekites are going to do? Wipe out the Kenites. Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way down to Tashur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good and were unwilling to utterly destroy them, but everything despised and worthless that they utterly destroyed. This tells you the heart of these people. Look at what it says. And were unwilling to utterly destroy them. Speaking of the good lambs, the good fatlings, the good, the good cattle, so forth. But they had no trouble executing all the people. They had no trouble knocking out all the men, killing all the women, killing all the children, even the nursing babies. They wiped out all them. They didn't bring any, any of them back. The only person they brought back was the king. But all the good-looking sheep, they kept them. The skinny, scrawny-looking ones, well, they just killed them. We, can, we don't need that one anyway. The cattle that didn't look so good, killed them. But this one looks pretty good. Let's hang on to that. So they brought back all this other stuff because they were not willing. But everything they... Despi everything despised and worthless, they utterly destroyed. They got rid of all the bad stuff. Isn't it easy to give God the stuff you don't like? Isn't that easy? I don't like that. God wants me to give that away. I'll go ahead and give that away. I don't like that one anyway. But when God asks you to give something away that you like, you don't like that so much. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king. For he has turned back from following me. In other words, he was following him, but now he's turned back from it. And has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. Apparently Samuel liked Saul. He enjoyed Saul. Something about Saul that he liked. And he was grieved about this. So when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul went to Carmel. And indeed he set up a monument for himself. And he has gone on around, passed pass by and gone down to Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Saul and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Isn't it amazing how people can tell themselves that they obeyed when they know they didn't? You see that exact same thing in your kids or when you were a child. How many times did you disobey and then come up with a way that you did actually obey? Found a loophole or something. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the 
lowing of the oxen which I hear. I shouldn't be hearing these noises if you were obedient. And Saul said, Ah, oh, okay, those guys. Um, well, they, they have brought them from the Amalekites. Now, when God pronounced judgment back there earlier, did He say the people? Who did He say? Saul. But Saul says, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have utterly destroyed. So in other words, he can hide by this. Well, we, that's, that's what they said they were bringing them back for. I, I mean, if some of them changed their mind up till now, I don't know about that, but that was the original plan. Some of them may have veered from that plan. Some of them may be trying to keep them now, but that was the original plan. We we're going to bring these all back and then sacrifice them to God. Then Samuel said to Saul, Be quiet, and I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, Speak on. Then Samuel said to Saul, Be Whoops, wrong one. So Samuel said, When you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me and brought back Agag, king of Amalekak, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the plunder. Again, the people. It's not me. I was obedient. The people took of the plunder, sheep and oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice the Lord your God in Gilgal. So now he's admitting they should have been destroyed, but we didn't. We brought them on back for the sacrifice. But again, it's the people. Now, didn't God say to, to slaughter all of them, including the king? He didn't say bring back the king. So Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He has also rejected you from being king. Do you see that cause and effect? Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He also has rejected you from being king. Isn't that what just we saw in Timothy? Cause and effect? Do something on this side has an effect on that side? But He said, because you have rejected the word of the Lord. God gave the command. Again, the command was, Thus says the Lord of hosts in verse 2, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way. So he gives the reason for it. Here's the command. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them. But kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. He said to kill it all. There's the, there's the command. Saul rejected the command by keeping the best. When we are not faithful to do what the Word of God commands, we are guilty of rejecting His Word. Don't be one who rejects the Word of God. You may not like all the things that it says, but go out there and do it. You might not like 
that the Word of God says love so-and-so, but go out there and do it. You may not like that the Word of God says to give this or to do that or to not do this, but go ahead and do it. Don't reject the Word of the Lord. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. Ah, finally. Finally. I have sinned. For I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words. Samuel probably could care less that they were his words. He just spoke the words of God. But it seems that Saul has another agenda. And that's probably why he threw that in there. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you for you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned around to go away, Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent, for he is not a man that he should relent. Now this is an important story. This is a very big day for Saul in his life. He's thinking about this for, for years and years, the things that went on. Do you remember, I believe it was the second time that David encountered Saul. What did David do? Cut his robe. And then he did what? He felt guilty for cutting the king's robe. Saul tore Samuel's robe. And immediately he turns to him and says, Thus has the Lord torn the kingdom from you. All this while, Saul is fearful that David is the man and pretty much he knows that he is the man. Then David is found to have a piece of that robe. Whether David ever knew this story, I don't know. He may have come to know about it later on, but at the time that David tore that robe, cut that robe, he didn't tear it, he actually cut it. By that time, whether David knew this story or not, we don't know. But when that happened to Saul, and he looked down at his robe and he saw the piece gone, and then that piece was in the hand of David, what do you think went through Saul's mind? I think it went flashed right back to this day. The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent, for he is not a man that he should relent. In other words, he's going to remain faithful. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now, please, before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord. All Saul was going for here was not repentance. It was honor. It was honor. He wanted the honor of Samuel coming back. If Samuel does not come back with Saul then the people begin to wonder, why didn't Samuel come with Saul? What's wrong with Saul? Something's wrong with Saul. And, and Saul has to get, get out of this and still look good. It's important that he look good. So that's what he works towards. And 
make sure probably from this point that he never has to depend on Saul showing up with him in the situation after this. So is this repentance? Does Saul desire restoration or honor? I think it's honor. I think that's what he's going for. He wants to be honored. Not necessarily anything else. Well, you put this in your outline too. Is it our responsibility to be faithful to what we think is right or what God said is? Is it our responsibility to be faithful to what we think is right or what God said is? Saul at this point is thinking the right thing is for the people they need to see Samuel behind me. And he would do and say anything. He would repent of anything. He would use whatever wording would get Samuel to follow him. And eventually Samuel does. Kind of wish that he wouldn't. It would have made a better statement. There was a story that was told at the end of World War II. General George S. Patton had the occasion to lament the war's end in a quiet walk that he took with his friend and mentor, General Omar Bradley. He told Brad that he actually was sad to see the war ending in Europe and that he would miss the struggle and the dynamics of warfare. Patton related to Bradley how, although he saw the brutality and vanity of war, he had been born to it and that was all he had ever really known. Bradley tried to console his old friend by suggesting that he continued on in Europe and fight the new battles that would surely be emerged from a war-torn European struggle to get back on his feet. George wasn't convinced. I need to hear the clash of arms and the sound of bugles, Patton insisted. Bradley then reminded Patton that there was still a war in the Pacific and that perhaps General MacArthur would be needing his help there. Patton shook his head sadly and quietly replied, No, no, Brad, Doug would never want me there. That would, that would never happen. When Bradley asked why, Patton smiled and responded, No, MacArthur wouldn't have me. You see, we fought in the same company in World War I. MacArthur was a captain, and I was his lieutenant. One day our company was commanded to take a hill, but our troops were pinned down by enemy artillery. When MacArthur got the order, he jumped to his feet and charged up that hill, urging his men to follow him. I advanced with him step by step all the way to the top. Then Patton added, MacArthur never forgave me for that. Some people don't want to share honor. Some people want the honor for themselves. We're not here to share God's honor. We're not here to be honored in front of people the way that Saul desired to be honored. We are here to be faithful. We are called to be obedient to His commands. And these are the things we need to be most focused on, to stay with the most. It is our responsibility to be faithful to what we think is right or what God said is. Be faithful to what God said, not what you think is right. And there are times, folks, that we think things. There are times that we think, well, Moses shouldn't have been punished so hard. Saul, God, you're a little tough on Saul there at the beginning. I think you've been a little softer. It might have been better for him. I don't know about this killing of all the people. And how many, how many of y'all know? You could face that and you faced it in your own life. 
There have been things that God has called you to do that you're not all that keen about. Right? You get some ideas and some things and you want to go after those ideas instead and still be seen as faithful or want to be seen as faithful. Mike Richardson had this quote I put in your outline. Sacrifice does not always require obedience. However, obedience always requires sacrifice. What will you be faithful to? We see what Saul was faithful to. What will you be faithful to? We know what the Word of God says. And we are to be faithful to it. As we get into this very important time here with our country, we are nearing elections. And you will be called upon to elect leaders in this country. President, Vice President, many of the Senators, House Representatives, all these folks are up for election. Not all of them, but a number of them are up there. There are a number of things that you have to be careful of. The number one, that you don't fall into identity politics and because you identify with a certain person, I'm going to vote for him or her. You cannot vote because you identify with someone. You cannot vote because you like one better than the other. You need to vote based upon the Word of God. You need to ask God, who am I to vote for? Don't tell God who you're voting for. You need to ask God, who do I vote for? Don't ask me who you're to vote for. You need to ask God, who do I vote for? If you're unsure about an issue, people around will certainly help you out with that. But you need to find out where do the people... Don't go into that, that booth and just decide I'm just going to pull one lever, lever or the other. You need to know who are these people that you are voting for. My wife's going to read a prophecy in a little while. talks about some of this and I was encouraged by some of the things that were said in it. But there are a number of issues. And I'll tell you what, with a number of candidates, presidential candidates, congressional candidates, they are very clear on their records. I don't, I don't, I'm not a one-issue person. I don't just vote for someone because they are for or against abortion. But it does impact me because I know God wants us to stand for those. And in this election, we have people that are very strongly on one side or the other. Not casually, very strongly on one side or the other. If you vote for a candidate who believes in abortion to the extent that some of these candidates do. We talked about some of it on a, on a Wednesday night before. One candidate in particular not only voted for abortion, but voted to keep, to, to allow babies to die who survive abortions. Three times voted for that. If you don't know who that is, ask me later. Three times. If you're going to put people in office who are going to select judges, who are going to make laws and allow these children to die in this way, you better know about it when you vote for them because when you get before God, God is going to say, did you vote for whom I told you to vote for? Not who I... Don't sit here and say, well, Pastor Steve made me go... I don't, I'm not going to make you go any way you want. You need to hear from God. And you better be able to stand before God and say, God, you told me to vote this way. I did. Be faithful to what He said. Because that's an important thing. God created the family. There are candidates on both sides of this and they are very strongly on both sides. Some want to defend the family. Husband and wife. Others want to mix it up. We can have a husband and a husband and a wife and a wife. It's not God's idea of a family. No one on the one side, no one on the side of keeping husbands and wives, husbands and wives, and that being the family. No one is out there trying to say, go out there and kill all the ones or do something to the ones that want to be husband and husband or wife and wife. 
But you need to protect that. And you need to find out where these candidates stand on it. If you do not find out where these candidates stand on it and know about that before you go into the election, then are you being faithful before God? You need to be faithful. It is very clear. The candidates right now that are up there, and it's for not just not just President, Congress as well, you have some folks who want to keep us a capitalistic environment, which is a God way to go. God is a capitalist more so than anything else. He is not a socialist. Countries that have fallen into socialism have oppressed religion. They have killed people that don't sit with the way that they want to go. This is what's in store. If you want to know what socialism does, you go over there and you study the Soviet Union. You study East Germany. You can study Japan. You can study Italy under Mussolini. You can study a number of these places. If you want to see what socialism does, you can go down to Cuba. Why does everyone leave Cuba? Go on down. You study these countries before you try and you, before you vote for people who will make us either a socialistic country or continuing the way that we have been going. Now, we've been sliding more into the area of socialism. And it's a wrong way to go. It is anti-religious. It is anti-God. Some of you folks, I hope not here. I just mean generally, not necessarily here. But some of you, some people in this country are allowing, and I'm, I know most people in the country who are not Christians, they won't fall prey to this, but Christians should not be allowing the media to decide. The media that we have is as ungodly as anything I have ever seen. And I said five, six years ago it was ungodly and it's gotten far worse. Far worse. I cannot stand to have them in my house. You all know that. I've said it over and over again. If you're going to let the media decide, then you're going to have to stand before God for that. And I won't have to stand before... I'm not even going to ask you about it. You all have to stand before God on that yourself. But don't you let the media decide. You find out about these ones. Because this media is so into this election. I've seen the numbers before. On one candidate, they are 95% favorable. And it's completely the opposite on the other side. They are trying to swing the election. Now, you can listen to them. Go after all the things. That, and they've, they've fabricated lies. I can document a whole lot of lies that the media has, has put out there. I don't just mean giving an opinion. I mean document it. But you have to listen. I would be amiss as your pastor if I let you go into this election that did not exhort you with everything in me to make sure that you know what the Word of God says and that you vote the will of God and not yours. I cannot vote my will. I've already told you, for those who are around on Wednesday night, we talk about it a little bit more, but you know, my, the people that I would have liked to run aren't in it. But we have to go with who we got. I could dream of who could have been in there and who made a should have been in there and isn't, but that's, that's all for now. We got who we got. Who are you going to vote for? Maybe the person you vote for doesn't get in. Maybe they do get in. But you need to, to know what the Word of God says and obey the Word of God. You, can, you know how to hear. We've taught you how long on how to hear from God. You all know how to hear from God? Listen to His voice. Don't listen to the voice of other people. Don't be faithful to the voice of other people. Be faithful to His voice. What is He telling you to do? 
What is He showing you about the candidates? What does He show you about their heart compared to His heart? And that's what you're responsible for. And then after the election, and folks, I don't care who gets in. If it's your guy or if it's not your guy. If it's the guy you thought was anti-God or the guy that you thought was all for God. I don't care who it is. We are responsible to pray for them. You may not like it. You may like it. But we will be responsible to pray for them and to help them in that, in that endeavor. It will be, it'll be very important. So, make sure that you do your research. I put one of the voter guys out there. I have some others to, to bring on out, but if you are wondering about this, they're all over the Internet, and you can find out uh, some, some voting records on these candidates, find out where they voted before. But then don't just take the opinion that someone just lists out there on the Internet. Make sure that you go and do the research on it yourself. There's plenty of ways available for you to do that anymore. So we're not without excuse. Most of us, how many of us have Internet access? I'll tell you what, I like Internet access. It's a good thing. We can get after a whole lot of stuff. You can get after bad stuff. You can get after good stuff. Stay with the good stuff. Let's go out there and find out what it is. But we had a prophecy. My wife's going to read parts of it to you. It's a very long one, and I think we can probably forward it to you if you uh, wanted that, but wanted her to be able to, to share some of the things that were in that. Okay, let's all start by saying, repeat this after me. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. I have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. I just want to add that because this election is not about politics. This election is most definitely a spiritual election. It is most definitely Satan against God. And there is one person who God has chose to be our next president. We need, as the church, to be behind that person. This, um, this prophecy really, really shook me. I'm going to share, as Pastor said, not all of it, but some of it with you. It is imperative that my people make intercession according to the mind of Christ and not according to the wisdom of man. Weigh in the balances these two things. What would you have for your nation, the mind of Christ or the mind of man? You choose. When my people join in with foolish jesting concerning your president, unknowingly they are joining the words of their mouth with him who would destroy the nation. They place the spirit in a position of having to lift the hand of my anointing from their mouths. They know not that the degree of my anointing lifts from the words of their mouth, that the authority of their words is rendered less powerful in every realm of their life. When my anointing, without my anointing, your words have no power and they have no authority. That is not my desire. I'm going to skip down this next part. God says, for I have handed the upcoming election into the hands of my church. Hear me now and hear me well. The lost will not determine the, the direction of our next president. The body of Christ is in control. But you must know this. If the wrong individual is elected, it is because the body of Christ will have voted and put this man in. If this happens, every Christian who has cast a vote for that individual will be held accountable for the sins of that individual. You will be held accountable for the apostasy that will come across this nation. You will be held accountable for the ungodly laws that are passed. You will be held accountable for the sin that rises up. 
you will be held accountable, for I have handed this election over to the church. Hear me now. There are those who of you who have listened to these words and believe that victory is at hand, but this is not so. You are looking at defeat. You are looking at the worst four years in this nation, in this nation's history, if you, the church, do not rise up and vote according to my word. I have taken note of those in my church who are standing in favor of abortion and homosexual rights and the other sins that I have identified in my word as an abomination unto me. For you see, when you, as my children, vote for an individual who supports these abominations, you are guilty of these abominations. For you have voted to make those things legal in this nation. If the wrong person is elected, this, those in my church who have voted this person in, the blood of those people who die in this nation will be on their hands. The ones who die as a result of that sin will be released in this country. I do not take this lightly, for I have said in my word that when the righteous rule, the people do rejoice. And if the wrong person is elected, there will be days of no rejoicing. There is a mighty spirit of confusion trying very hard to draw the body of Christ in the wrong direction. Many of those that I have called to preach and to minister my word have risen up and supported sin. They do not see it as this. Many have embraced the concept of change, believing it will be better. But you don't understand, for I have warned you that this was coming, this spirit of confusion. And I had told you to watch out because the voice of the deceiver would be very smooth and very cunning and could cause people to listen. Don't we see that all over? You do not understand. You hear what sounds to be a positive voice speaking a positive change, but you don't understand. It's not positive. It is an abomination change. Do you not remember from my word how Israel cried out for a king and I gave them the best one I could find, and he still led the nation toward downfall? Too many are voting because they think this country needs a new direction. This country needs my son, Jesus. And if you do not vote in the direction of the one who is in favor, the one who is not in favor of abomination, then you are voting in the direction of Satan himself. There are many who will hear this and not like it and will take issue because you see many in my church are blinded, severely blinded by the whole concept of social injustice, social change, social progress, and social iniquities. Listen to what you are saying. These are the things of man. Does not my word point in the direction of spiritual progress and spiritual change? What are you focusing on? You're focusing on the natural. Don't be deceived. The Bible, he goes on to talk about things. This, we know this to be true. No matter who gets, no matter who has been our president in the past, our responsibility as the church is always to pray for those in leadership over us. He makes note here, he says, do not mistake that so many Christians, that same mistake that so many Christians made when Bill Clinton was your president. Many of you do not realize this, but the constant criticism of that man while he was the president helped open the door for more sin to be released because you spoke the things of the enemy. Our words have what? Life or death? There is power in our words. There is authority in our words. This election is can can either can do one of two things for the body of Christ. We will either have an easier road to witness and bring in the harvest, or we will have a really, really hard time. We will be almost silenced as Christians. You cannot look at this as a black or white issue. 
You cannot look at this as, well, we want a male, a female. I don't care if it's a zebra that's running, if it's the one that God picked. The bottom line is you've got to view everything that these people are saying in light of the word. You know, I get very, very upset when I see people like these reverends out there who want to stand behind a pulpit and preach hatred and racism. Where is Jesus in that? God, as to his nature, is love. The last time I checked, the word of God says, where there is division and strife, there is every evil work. If you associate yourself with somebody who is preaching that, you are associating yourself with evil. I don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand. There are people who are running for candidacy who are associating with people who preach hatred, who preach division. We will be held accountable. This has gone on to say, God is looking for people who will pray. And he made a statement in here. I love this statement. He said, your voice is the first voice I hear in heaven. Those of you who intercede, those of you who pray, you are the first voice I hear. Not the pastor who gets up and preaches behind the pulpit. That's not what he, he hears that, but that's not the first words he hears. He hears our cries. He hears our prayers. As the church, we need to be on our faces before God and just pray and not get up until we have an answer. That is what this this election is going to do for us. We are either going to vote in the right person that God has chosen or we're going to vote in the wrong person. But understand, God is watching each and every one and he knows who it is who is voting and what direction we're voting. I don't want innocent blood on my hands i want to hear directly from heaven that's why i don't even listen to the polls anymore because i'm listening to people okay nobody knows the future but god so i listen to my spirit god what are you telling me how am i even to pray i have to lift up even people the church we have to pray for the church to vote because a lot of people say oh well god will do whatever he's going to do no He holds us accountable to be obedient. So please take this issue to prayer. Don't let it just come up at the last minute and go, oh, well, we should have. We could all go back and sing our shoulda, woulda, couldas, and it it won't be any benefit to us. We want to have and continue to have the freedom that we have right now to go out into the streets and proclaim Jesus. But if we don't do what God is admonishing us to do, that could be stripped from us. I don't want to see that happen. So as Pastor said, if you want the entire prophecy, I can send it to you. It is a 10-page prophecy. And uh, it it was given over a couple of of weeks, actually. But it it talks about the harvest um, and and what we can expect as a church in these next upcoming months um, with regards to the harvest, with regards to the outpouring of the glory of God. Um, but be forewarned, it is a stern warning to the body of Christ, so be prepared. I was given in um, the church that Malcolm and Marvinas go to. Bruce, did you hear them say anything about it? I was going to give them a call to see how that, how that went on when they uh, <coughs> done that. But, but um, you know, like we told you a long time ago when the whole election process started, the press is going to try and cause us to be divided. Don't be divided over this. But find out what God is telling you to do. And go out there and do it. Don't do what you want to do. I can't go out there and do what I want to do. 
But I can go out there and do what God tells me to do and what God shows me to do. I can go out there and honor His Word and do what His Word says to do. And you all have a spirit, a renewed spirit. You all have the Word of God in you and you all can figure out what is it God's telling you to do and uh, take care of that. And that's whatever way it goes. We all need to make sure we're praying afterwards. We are praying people afterwards. Not complaining people. Praying people. I can certainly be said of myself, I was probably more on the complaining side with certain presidencies and then on the praying side. And I uh, need to make sure that we don't, we don't do that. I want to get on the praying side. What time? Saturday, 7 o'clock. There is a, uh, the prayer team is getting together for a prayer for the... Yeah, but prayer team is getting together for prayer and everybody else who wants to come along on Saturday night, 7 o'clock here at church praying for the upcoming... Uh, like 7 o'clock at night. Right here at the church. Yeah, that'll be going on. Father God, we thank you that you help us in our decisions. That we are here in this earth to do what you would have us to do and to follow your will. You gave us your word and you gave us of your spirit. We can read your word and study your word and hear from your spirit so that we can accomplish what you tell us to do. We want to honor everything that you say in your word. The words that you give us to do we want to do. Not because it's necessarily something we 100% agree with, but because you said it. Just as we looked at Saul, he didn't always agree with the things that you said to do. And he didn't always carry them out. It ended up with him being rejected as king. Well, we may not be king of a nation, but we are servants of you. We want to make sure that we honor your word and do what you say to do. So help us, Father, in the weeks that are to come, not to be swayed by evil reporters and media folks who just are anti-God, but to listen to your spirit and to hear from you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.